Okay. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Assalamu alaikum, everybody. Welcome to another Tuesday session. Um, I just thought I would share a really short, short reflection, I guess, um, about um, conversion. You know, we're so deep into learning here, and I think it's so true. It's like the more you learn, the more you feel that you know so little. And it's really humbling and you know, we talk a lot here also about how if people understood the weight of responsibility or the weight of accountability on what you say and what you share, um, that you would ultimately, or people would be ultimately very, very careful about what they say, especially when it comes to um, how they represent Islam and anything Islamic. And I know like one of the very early lessons that I um, that I gained from the Sheikh um, was, you know, a fundamental respect for knowledge and a fundamental respect for your word and being able to discern and be, you know, clear before God that if you are going to say something about Islam or say something about your understanding, that you begin with qualifying it and, you know, giving the caveat, this is my opinion, you know, I'm not a scholar, this is something that, you know, I understand and God knows best, I could be wrong. Um, the thing that, and that, that releases you of your accountability because you're not speaking on behalf of the religion, you're speaking on behalf of yourself and your own understanding and where you are in your own journey, which is really important. Um, and I know as a convert, you know, it's really um, hard because you are overwhelmed with so much that you don't know on the one hand. But on the other hand, sometimes um, what's fascinating is you feel like you've gone through so much to arrive at becoming a Muslim that you feel like you actually um, have something to say and something that you want to share because it is quite miraculous and I think a lot of times when people finish this journey and they end up Muslim, they want, they want to talk about it, um, which is perfectly fine, but um, they may not be aware of that etiquette of being careful about you know, representing you know, yourself, your own opinion, your own understanding. And I've noticed certainly um, that there are people on social media, converts I'm speaking about specifically, um, or, you know, I mean, new converts. So I'm thinking people who have been, you know, converts for under five years, under three years, under two years sometimes. Um, and they're very excited to start sharing about their situation and start representing, you know, and understandably so because it's exciting, you know, to talk about something that you've found that's beautiful. Um, but I just want to give some advice because I, I find it scary and alarming when I see people who have been Muslim for such a short time trying to create an identity around themselves as being someone who knows a lot more than they do. And especially with social media, it's, it's a really, um, I think, tricky, slippery slope because it's, you're absolutely within your right to talk about your experience, um, but then people get very excited too because there's the element of you know, people wanting to hear the convert story and wanting to know, you know, what did you experience and, and who are you and what are you and, you know, there are definitely personalities that are emerging that are like, you know, I'm a convert, look at me, I dress this way, I'm cool, let me tell you about my experience with me, my husband, my whatever, whatever. Um, and you can very easily slide into a bit of an ego um, situation too. And I think that um, Really, and then the other thing too is I noticed that social media becomes sort of a very dangerous place for asking a lot of questions. We've talked about this here before too, where you know even on our own like Usuli Institute community, I see people asking questions that are not to be asked of any you know a, a, like faceless um, you know 
like community of people you have no idea and because people are very happy to tell you what their opinion is and jump in and tell you what Islamic law has to say about this or Islam has to say about that so I mean it begins by just being responsible about where you actually ask your questions um, and and learning also not to jump to answer the question if you think you know the answer um, because you know what we've learned here too is if you are often a heritage Muslim you think you know what Islam has to say about something, but you actually learn something very different when you take time to really study and, and all of that. But, um, you know, and um, and actually I also wanted to say, I noticed that there are, there's a, you know, pattern where a lot of times people who convert want to start writing books about their conversion or, you know, write, um, you know, their, their journey or their, you know, or sometimes books about warning other converts about what they're about to experience and things like that. So there's a lot of stuff that's out there. And I guess because we are really dedicated to, you know, knowledge, critical thinking, um, learning to suspend judgment, and and also to watch our accountability, um, I just want to underscore how important important that is, um, especially for converts who you know are excited to share their story, um, you know, or anyone who wants to sort of say anything about Islam because it's very black and white, or they think it's very black and white. To just be careful, be aware of your accountability. Better to, um, you know, um, put your head down in a book, or just you know, be silent and, and learn and take your time because this obviously is a very long process and um, a very humbling process. And um, you know, again, like if you understand your accountability before God for what you say, um, I think that most people will be silent. You know, wise people who are wise will be silent and leave um, leave the scholarship um, to scholars. Who have dedicated, you know, their time and have have, uh, I mean, put all of us to shame. So um, that is my little two cents reacting to what I see out there. So anyway, I'm looking forward to another wonderful session, inshallah, al kamar I think it's a full moon tonight, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, just in time. <laughs> okay, he's not Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen SubhanAllah Aliyyil Azim Umma salli wa sallim wa barik ala Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa ala man attaba'u bi ihsani ila yawmi ddeen Umma shrahli sadri yasirli amri wa ahli rahmatan min lisani yafqan khawli ya Rabbi Um, okay, so inshallah we will be talking about Surat Al-Qamar. Um, it's most certainly a Meccan Surah and uh, one of the early Meccan Surahs. And Surah Al-Qamar, there, although there are some reports that claim that a couple of verses was, were revealed in Medina, uh, there, there is not much that would support that view. It, the, I think the overwhelming evidence is that Surah Al-Qamar in its entirety was revealed in Medina. And it was revealed after Surah Tariq. So it was revealed after a string of Surah of Al-Mursalat, Al-Balad, Qaf, uh, 
Surah Tariq and Surah Qamar, which, and right before Surah Sad. So it's sort of sandwiched between Surah Qaf and Surah Sad in, in a sense. Um, which then would make it an order of revelation likelihood is that it's 37, 36. But it's among the early Meccan sore. And Surah Qamar, like certain surah in the Quran, like Surah Al-Rahman, for instance, uh, has a persistent refrain that it repeats uh, several times, and we will talk about the significance of this refrain and uh, in the context of the surah as a whole. There, um, very early, very early reports that we find in some sources that Surat al-Qamar, there seem to have been um, and some people who have dubbed it Surat al-Qtarabat rather than Surat al-Qamar. But that, that trend never went anywhere and it became extinct uh, with time and it, I think it's solidly by the overwhelming uh, overwhelming majority of authorities became Surat al-Qamar and it, it seems like the, the propositions of Surat al-Qarabat had become completely extinct after the first century of Islam. And anyway, I mean, for the way that the Surah are named, al would have been a very odd name for a Surah. Which of course, comes from the very first word of Surah Al-Qamar, Qtarabat al-Sa'an, Qamar. Okay. All right. So, um, then let's just jump into it. The most, perhaps, famous and noticeable thing about Surah Al-Qamar is precisely the expression that we encounter right in the first ayah of the surah the hour the hour has drawn near or the hour is near and the the moon has split In Shakka al Qamar. In Shakka could, in most common uses for in Shakak, is to mean something has split, something has cracked, something has separated. Um, 
in Shikok could be a, a, a crack or an entire split. It could be an actual split or a perceived split. Um, but also in Shikok, that word has a different sense that is uh, used frequently, and it's still used in modern, in, in even in modern Arabic. Um, and that is to mean for something to actually appear. So if you say, for instance, in Shikaku Zulma, that means that the darkness has come to an end. Or, um, and, and the morning is coming through. Or if you say, in Shikaku Sabah, it means the morning has appeared. So, This is all material, as we'll see in a second, because of the debate that go, typically goes on about uh, what this surah is talking about. Is it talking about an actual split of the moon? Or is it talking about a more of the figurative Arabic of that um, there will be some type of transformation in the moon that we perhaps don't understand. Now, the, the reason this becomes of, of significance is because as um, uh, so many authorities in the Islamic tradition, and, and I think it's, it's the, the, the majority of authorities, argued that it, the surah, this very ayah, is referring to a miracle. And reportedly that the Meccans at um, the uh, time of the Prophet, والسلام, in arguing with him about a miracle, in some reports they even say to him, well, if you're a prophet, then why don't you uh, demonstrate a miracle with the moon and then that Allah causes the moon to appear split whether the moon actually splits or appears to be split it doesn't matter really uh, and that's the miracle that the Meccans are presented with and that they some of them said, well, th this is a, a, a trick that Muhammad made, some type of optical illusion that Muhammad uh, created. So let's ask people from elsewhere, from people from other parts that are not in Mecca, travelers. And reportedly the travelers say, yes, we've seen the moon split, and so on. Some authorities, which would be 
in in the pre in the medieval tradition a, a minority view said that no the, the yes, this ayah is not talking about an event in which the moon splits but is rather talking about a future event that one of the things that would happen at the end of times is some type of inshikok, sometimes some type of a, 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 a crack, a transformation, something that we don't really understand with the moon. And of course, anything that would happen with, with the moon would result in major uh, consequences on Earth, earthquakes and storms and so on. And that would be consistent with the end of times. And this debate in the pre-modern tradition uh, continued on for a long time. And it is in part because as the argument, the, the, the anti-miracle group said, well, if it was true that the moon split at the time of the prophet, it would have been witnessed by a lot of people. But it was reported mostly by Muslim authorities and no one other than or attributed to Muslim authorities and no one other than Muslim authorities uh, reported the Inshikok. Of course, theologically, because the Quran emphasizes so often that the Meccans demand a miracle from the Prophet, and the Quran responds to them by saying, no miracle, the, the miracle of the Prophet is the Quran. Um, this is partly what um, caused the, those who rejected the idea of the moon splitting as a miracle and insist, insisted that no, the Quran is talking about a future event something that would transpire towards the end of times. Um, although there are many reports that claim that the moon or the splitting of the moon was witnessed at the time of the Prophet I have a, a, a significant theological problem with the claim that the moon was split um, or appeared to be split whether it was an optical illusion or an actual thing it, it, it's, it doesn't matter um, Because everything we know about the seerah, it would it would contradict or it would be in in inconsistent with so much of the of the seerah that always talks about the prophet Muhammad as a a a prophet of a new age, an age without 
these types of miracles that the biblical that were typical of the biblical prophets. We know that early in early Islam, Christians and Jews, one of the common criticisms that they leveled against the Prophet is that they would claim that the Prophet Muhammad must be inferior to their own prophets because their own prophets had miracles and the Prophet Muhammad didn't have miracles. And we know that as a response to these incessant criticisms, because Islam started out as a minority religion, there were a lot of reports circulated um, about miracles, physical miracles attributed to the Prophet. And I think in, in, there is a, a um, there is a, a genre of hadith, the hadith that had no impact, no legal consequences, hadith that the fuqaha were not very interested in because they were not legalistic hadith or hadith that wouldn't make a difference legally, um, that we um, that we find we're not scrutinized with a lot of diligence and were transmitted very widely uh, among the Qusas and the storytellers and the um, and, and proselytizers, the the sort of the evangelists that would go out and, and preach Islam. And there's no question in the day and age, it, it helped the preachers a great deal if they could claim that the prophet had a, had a miracle. I think, of course, I mean, if, if a Muslim says, no, I believe that, the, that the, the moon did split at the time of the prophet and that was you know, okay, fine, that's that's their, I, I respect that, that's their opinion. But personally, I find it very, for many, many different reasons, I find it very difficult to accept the narrative about the the moon splitting either in reality or, or optically uh, at the time of the Prophet. And there is so much in the surah that, it, indicates that it's talking about a future event and or and and even the in Shikaka Qamar I mean it's not quite clear what it is referring to it doesn't mean that it will actually the, the moon will break into ha two halves but there will be transformations and especially as uh, at the final time, or the final hour. Okay. وَإِنْ يَرُوا آيَةً يُعْرِضُوا وَيَقُولُوا سِحْرٌ مُسْتَمِرٌ وَكَذَّبُوا وَاتَّبَعُوا أَهْوَاءَهُمْ or 
So, the opening of the surah, right away, gets us to something that is at the heart of Surah Al-Qamar. It is talking about people that are in incessant denial. If it is talking about a miracle in the past, which as we said, that is not my view, it is saying that although they witnessed this miracle, they still refuse to believe and still denied and said that this is but sorcery. If it is talking about an event in the future, it is also saying that as this event comes to be, the type of people that we are talking about will still continue to deny. But they deny because they are vested in denial. They are following whims. In other words, they are vested in these whims. They have a, a passion, a practice, well-settled interests in being loyal to these whims and being loyal to the sense of caprice that becomes the philosophy of their life. Regardless of, regardless of, regardless of what the reality that will unfold before them. So let's take both possibilities first and say what type of people could possibly see a moon split and still deny? Although, I, again, I underscore, I don't think that that's what happened. But if that's what happened, what type of people would still see a moon split and still have this long ordeal with the Prophet Muhammad where they insist that it's all a lie, it didn't happen, and even go to war against him, etc., etc.? And we can flip it then on its, on its other side and say, well, what type of people would witness physical transformations 
in the life that they're living, where they see a catastrophic event like major the moon cracking, the moon changing, the moon, whatever transformations, because that's going to have direct effects on Earth, and we know that as the the final hour approaches, the Earth will be beset by numerous catastrophes and disasters, and um, things will look like, but they will still continue to deny, meaning that they will seek every possible rational explanation as to what is transpiring other than God. So, and that is وَكُلُّ أَمْرٍ مُسْتَقِرٍ That, when it, how did they try? And every matter shall be made to endure, well, yeah, and, and regardless of what is, regardless of what is enduring before them, they deny. Now, all of the 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 the, the uh, thrust of Surah Al-Qamar is pointing our attention to. to something that the Prophet Muhammad will encounter throughout. But other Prophets, as Surat Al-Qamar talks about, also encountered throughout. There are people who denial, skepticism, sarcasm, rejection, obstructionism becomes like a religion to them. What in reality they're truly committed to is, is, is their own whimsy, their own caprice. Their, their own sense of affirming their ego in its ebbs and flows as it goes up and down. But the way that this is done is a commitment to rationalization. And it's readying the Prophet Muhammad in saying Listen, there are people that even if the moon splits, it, it doesn't matter. It's like it, like the, the people the the, the, follow, the people who followed the Pharaoh when they see the ocean split and yet they, they march right into it. They will always find some rational justification to deny what they don't want to believe in. They don't want to believe 
that there is a God that is sovereign over their whim, over their caprice. And so that commitment itself means that regardless of what unfolds, they are, their conviction is doubt. And this is precisely why with those people Surah Al-Qamar comments that they, they've received the messages that contain Muzdajar is a refrain or reproof. Well, they, they've, they've received the messages that would have communicated the point. They, they, and in fact, they hear these messages loud and clear. Hikmatun baligha, and in fact, complete wisdom, the truth, hikmatun baligha, is shining, obvious, clear, proof or uh, uh, truth however it doesn't matter it's not an issue that of warning them they will not be warned and that is why Turn away from them. There is no point to engaging them. Some have, uh, but even if you, um, some have claimed that, as was rather classic of some Quranic commentators, that verse 6 became abrogated. Um, by the so-called sword verse, but that that's that's clearly wrong. I mean, what it's saying is realize that there are people who are addicted because of problems that ha doesn't have to do with rationality or with proof or with evidence. They're addicted to denial. And their commitment to themselves overrides and overwhelms any other commitment. And re regardless, they will deny. And they will come up with whatever excuse to live in a state of denial. Perhaps this is why in Sufi asked the Fasir, They say that it doesn't matter whether the miracle of the, or the so-called miracle of the splitting of the moon occurred or didn't occur, and it doesn't even matter whether the moon will split in the future or not. Because Sufi Astafasir understand the splitting of the moon as a figurative expression 
to say that what has what is cracking is what that expression on Shakal Qamar that what is is cracking is the 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 truth itself. So the hour when it says they normally read it as the hour of enlightenment could have come close. It could have been present at hand. But these people, it is as if when the moon, the moon is symbolic for enlightenment or illumination. When they have the opportunity to be illuminated, they will stare at the moon and crack it. Imagine it to be broken, severed. Because they are committed to no one but themselves. And their commitment to themselves makes them unwilling to concede anything that would place limits on their ability to serve themselves at their whim and at their discretion. This, however, this, I, I, I should say, it's not just on matters of belief or, or lack of belief. Sometimes the truth stares us in the face like a full moon about all types of things. Someone can see the truth like a full moon that if they continue smoking the pack a day or two packs a day, they're going to end up with a heart attack. But they rationalize it away. Sometimes we can see that we are in unhealthy relationships and it's obvious that the person we're with is toxic, not right, and we rationalize it away. Sometimes there are signs, clear signs, that things in our life are not on the right track, and we ignore it and rationalize it away. It is, as a lot of the Sufi-esque literature talks about, it is a personality type. It is, it is not just that you don't want to go towards God, but you are committed to um, a, a mani, or a, a uh, um, uh, wishfulness. So, uh, one of the um, one of the notes I wrote that uh, in one of the um, and I don't I I didn't write where what Sufi source I I found it in, 
is that you could even have signs that your your child is among the shuttar. Shuttar means um, troublemakers or, um, you, you know, n n uh, um, 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 vagabonds, the n no good people, no, no good ki kids on the streets. And you refuse to believe it. You know, people come to you and say your child is among the shuttar. We see him in, you know, in Hanat drinking and fighting and stuff like that. And you just won't, you refuse to see it. You don't want to see it. And, or we, we also have that in our age, very common with alcoholics and addicts, right? You mean, you could have every indication that someone you love is an addict or an alcoholic, or you yourself could be an addict and an alcoholic, but you just don't want to see it. What? It's rather very. Um, uh, this is the thing that I I that has always struck me the most about Surat Al Qamar. Is it starts out with something that would seem so obvious. The image itself, in shock or kamar. But then it shocks you when it says, no, 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 they, these people, it's not that just they are denying in shock or kamar. They're committed to denial. There is nothing that's going to and then when you read the, the musings, especially of Sufi nature, and things like the Futuhat of Ibn Arabi and so on, and then, you, and then say, you know, it's, how many of you, how many of you have spent your life, one of the, uh, um, and I think this is in the Futuhat, um, it says that there are many people who live their life batting away full moons as they pop in front of their faces. It's a very powerful image that you you know you, you just wake up and you keep every time there's moon you swat it away. Um, of course, you you have it's because there's always a vested interest in something else that's making you do that. You know whether. But you, we can. Uh, um, one of the, the the things I found in the notes, in my notes, it says uh, like um, nationalisms or like uh, tribal loyalties, where okay, I am, and then it made me think of. You know, the way that in our day and age, people will be committed to a football team or a soccer team. And, you know, they don't care what the evidence is about, you know, it's the most irrational thing in the world. It's like, this is my team. And I'm completely loyal to this team. Um, it's a they're right. It is a personality type. It's it's like a, an and it, it, it's a malady. It's an illness. It's it's an illness of the heart that is one of the hardest things to treat. Um, 
because it camouflages itself very easily as rationalism and as logic. The, uh, the, the true philosophers in life are one out of a thousand. The pretend philosophers in life are countless. There are many people who will say, well, I doubt because I think. The vast majority doubt because they feel that their interest lays in doubting. But those who truly doubt because of intellectual acumen, that's extremely rare. Uh, because knowing how to think is also extremely rare. Uh, a lot of people don't, uh, until your, your mind is disciplined by logic, you, you don't realize that the vast majority of people actually don't think correctly. It just, their logic is flawed. So, Hikmatun Baliga, that's an amazing expression. So beautiful. Such apparent wisdom. But there's no use. Turn away from them. خش عن أبصارهم يخرجون من الأزداث كأنهم جراد منتشر. That and that image is also a very powerful one. That in the end, in the fight, in the in the when the time comes, the way human beings will flock. Um. means that they, they, they flock out heading towards the call, meaning their Lord. Like um, like, like uh, you know, when you when you have a swarm of um, uh, what do you call that? Um, locusts. Locusts. Yeah, a swarm of locusts. Um, it, 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 human beings will, will come out in in it, it will look like that. Uh, but that again, that expression "muhtaina ila da" is 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 a an amazing expression because it's not just it doesn't just connote that you you come out and you are heading towards a direction with your as if you're 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 transfixed about uh, on that on that target like you're being pulled towards that target and you can't steer away but at the same time it's with lowered heads or lowered gazes. So it, it in, in just these couple of words, it drew an entire picture of this 
flocking of huge numbers of human beings all in a mixture of humility and fear and tension and um, anxiety. So look, in eight verses, and this is when we talk about the linguistic miracle of the Quran, in eight verses, it communicated an entire volume of philosophy, imagery, everything. I mean, it, it's a, just, a, and the language is just amazing. Okay. So then, Surah Al-Qamar, moves on to recount or mention, because it doesn't really recount in any detail, although remember that Surah Al-Qamar is among the early surah, so some authorities say that Surah Al-Qamar is the first surah that, for instance, said anything about, in, in any amount of detail, about the people of Nuh. Uh, you know, so if it's not the first, it's definitely among the first. Let's put it that way. And it will recount to us in, again, very short order, but very powerful language. Nuh, Ad, Thamud, Lut, and Fra'un. So, five. And there is, in this short surah, a repeated refrain. There's a refrain, فَكَيْفَ كَانَ عَذَابِي وَنُذُرِ So, how have you found my warning and my punishment? It is like saying, how have you found the moral lesson? Now, normally, when you read the, the sources, they tell you that, well, the, the five dimensions of the, the five uh, historical precedents is to, to, to bring comfort to the Prophet. And it's like saying, you know, uh, don't feel bad that they are denying and turning away. Look, this happened with these other prophets who were were also uh, uh, rejected and it, it, people turned away from them until God had to punish the people they were sent to. But 
what's interesting in Surah Al-Qamar is this consistent refrain, فَكَيْفَ كَانَ عَذَابِي وَنُذُرُ How was my warning and how was my punishment? So keep this in mind because this is inviting us, in my view, to think a bit about the consequences and to reflect upon the consequences. Okay. So, كَذَّبَتْ قَوْمُ نُوحِ فَكَذَّبُوا عَبْدَنَا وَقَالُوا مَجْنُونٌ Nuh Noah was uh, was denied, and they they claim that he is majnoon, he's crazy. Was is uh, uh, um, is means um, someone who's like um, moves around purposeless, without purpose, uh, or someone who is. Possessed, uh, 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 possessed by jinn, uh, that's also an isdijar. And in Quranic commentaries, of course, they always tell you that, you know, keep in mind that Noah lived a very, very long time, lived centuries, according to the Quran itself, and that he was denied and rejected for this whole time. Um, and not only that, but there are many narratives that Nuh was not just nicely rejected, but that people would, in fact, beat him and strangle him and throw rocks at him. I mean, it was... And that he, uh, that that famous statement that is um, attributed to Jesus, um, God forgives them for they don't know what they do. It was first attributed to Noah. Uh, that his response, that that was his response every time people would would uh, attack him and so on, and assault him. And eventually, then Noah says to Allah. فَدَعَ رَبَّهُ أَنِّي مَغْلُوبٌ I'm persecuted. God come to my aid. This is also a very remarkable expression um, because in two words, مَغْلُوبٌ فَانْتَصَرْ It's like you're doing it for Allah to, to, to come and, and give you victory because you are suppressed and persecuted and treated horribly um, among the remarkable expressions of the Quran. Okay. So we, th- there is pouring rain and floods. Uh, we, we carried, uh, carried Nuh on, Al-Wah means the planks of the ship. What those are, those are, are um, like nails or what you use to bind things with. So that they carried on a ship made of wood and bindings. Uh, bindings could be nails or could be ropes, whatever. 
um, 15 ولقد تركناها آية فهل من مدكر um, they say this is 15 which is translated um, and we left it as a sign for those who remember they they say that at that for a long time parts of either parts or segments of Nuh ship um, people knew where it was and there were even artifacts in circulation of one you know it's uh, it's one thing to read about like pieces of wood that belong to Nuh ships but one of the saddest things you read about is the podium of the prophet uh, it was in circulation or first it was there are reports of it of it being trend, uh, moved around in whole until eventually um, it's broken up and people start owning just parts of it until around the ninth century Hijra it, it completely disappears Okay. So with with Nuh, we, the flood. The only thing I want to say about the, the flood is that for for some reason, um, it has become fashionable among modern Muslims to repeat the biblical narrative that the flood covered the entire world, and that's there's no. That's not what the Quran says. I mean, in the Bible, yes, the flood is supposed to have covered the entire world. But there's nothing in the Quran that indicates that the Noah's flood covered the entire world. Uh, and in fact, there are indications of the Quran that it didn't. Um, that's just as a sidebar. Okay. So we're going to come back to, to, to so first with Noah, we, we know that there are the torrents of water. That the water that is from the heavens, from the, from the ground, and that, that is uh, how his people are doubled. Okay. Then in Surah Al-Qamit moves on to Ad. كَذَّبَتْ عَادٌ فَكَيْفَ كَانَ عَذَابِي وَنُذُرُ With the same refrain, Ad denied with that same refrain, how was my warning and punishment? And we are, with Ad, what befalls him? This is 19. Howling wind. Um an incessant howling wind and in fact the the, the as the Quranic imagery they become that like uh, uprooted trunks of palm trees meaning that they're strewn around because the wind had caused 
this massive destruction. Then كذبت ثمود بالنذر فقالوا أبشرا منا واحدا نتبعه إن إذا لفي ضلال وسعر. Um, this is um, 24 that Thamud denied and focused on something that the Quraysh used to say how can the Prophet be a human being and they called the Prophet Kazab Asher Asher is um, is um, someone who's deceptive and um, a traitor. Although the funny thing is that Asher can also be used in, in in literature, it's often used in a positive sense as someone who's funny. But obviously they don't mean funny here, they mean a, a lie, a, a um, um, this is 26, this is how they translate it. Yeah, insolent, liar. Okay. So in the case of Samud, we are told briefly about a naka that they are they have the camel which we've encountered before in the tafsir that there is a camel and they're told that they, they have to share their water with the with a naka and that eventually they, they they get a particular person in their in their midst to murder the, to kill the camel, and then they are punished. And how are they punished in the case of Thamud? Al-Sayha. Inna arsanna alayhim sayhatan wahida fakanu kahashim al-muhradar. That there is a sayha which can be simply translated as a blast. Um, how did the Saudi Quran translate it? Uh, this is 31. Oh, cry. Yeah. A sayha could be a cry, a blast, but what precisely is a cry or is a sayha? Other than some massive, sudden event, we have no frame of reference. Sayha is often used in the Quran in the context of the hereafter, that the hereafter there will be a sayha and a, a cry, and that will herald the hereafter. But in the, here, Samud is destroyed by a sayha, which can be translated as a blast, a cry, um, a sudden overwhelming event. Okay. Then next, we move on to Qawm Lut. Kazabat Qawm Lut ibn Nudur. 
إنا أرسلنا عليهم حاصبا إلا آل لوط نجيناهم بسحر نعمة من عندنا كذلك نجزي من شكر ولقد أنظرهم بطشتنا فتماروا بالنذر فذوقوا عذابي ونذر ولقد sorry so with with قوم لوط this is at 34 that they were warned they insisted upon their their past this is we find 36 and the although here was loot it doesn't give us a lot of detail but it just simply says that they wanted to assault his guests um so we closed their eyes or we we veiled their eyes so they were and what it's talking about is that of course in the tradition uh, it says you have reports that when they they come attacking Lut's home and they say we know that you have guests give them to us because as they wanted to rape them um that in the in the traditions that Gabriel waves with his with his wing and blinds them that's one tradition but it's not very reliable um, other traditions say that they're simply God caused their eyes to gloss so they couldn't see the guests as the guests escaped or but we'll come back to this issue of blinding in a second Okay, so they were punished, and in in case of Kalmut, we are told that the that their punishment punishment is hasaban. Hasaban is a form of a tempest that. Um, A, a tempest that um, heralds rocks or mud, uh, that could also be a hassle. Okay. And then the final people that Surah Al-Qamar mentions is Qawm Fir'aun. وقد جاء آل فرعون النذر كذبوا بآياتنا كذبوا بآياتنا كلها فأخذناهم أخذ عزيز مقتدر. So with قوم فرعون it doesn't say anything is other than they have denied our message فأخذناهم أخذ عزيز مقتدر. So they were thoroughly destroyed. So, we know that the Qur'an repeats the story of Ad, Thamud, Lut, Nuh, and Fir'aun on several occasions. 
But we know that every time the Quran repeats it, it repeats it with an emphasis on a different aspect to communicate a point. And we know with, in the case of Surah Al-Qamar, that we are dealing with people who stubbornly reject and, and they are committed to a philosophy or to, to committed to a methodology of denial. Basically, they, whatever loyalty, whatever attracts their loyalty or whatever earns their commitments and their convictions, this is what they're going to stick with. And regardless of what stirs them in the face, but what stirs them in the face here and that consistent refrain, فَكَيْفَ كَانَ عَذَابِي وَنُذُرُ How was my warning and punishment is inviting us to think about the consequences. And here we, it's a, it makes sense to introduce the way that a lot of the Sufi-esque literature dealt with these same themes. So what we find that's very interesting in the Sufi-esque literature generally is and it was sort of common, by the way, it plays a huge role among uh, in, in Sufi literature, that they gave, they understand a lot of the language of Surat al-Qamar as referring symbolically to things within. So, with Surat, with, with Nuh, for instance, They talk about the ship that Noah, the ship, the ship of of um, salvation that Noah builds, as something that God calls upon us all to build within. That if we are overwhelmed. We and a lot of their their their, their attention is is focused on how you build a salvation vessel, how you start out with these baby steps, and in order to overcome the floodgates and what. Floodgates in, in Sufi esque literature, they often talk about the floodgates of confusion that are brought about by an inability to decipher um, what's worthy from what is not worthy. 
and so you you're basically overwhelmed and they say well in in if you're overwhelmed, you construct a, a ship of salvation. And, and, in, and similarly, when it comes to um, uh, the, the story of the camel, camel of Salih, they say that the camel is Allah inviting you to the introspection of balance within that as they say inspect your camel do you give its camel its rights and the worst thing to do is if you cause the camel within to be killed or if you've killed your inner camel what does the camel represent it represents um, your the, the inclinations within you that are not about competition and not about aggression the inclinations within you that are connected to your intuitive nature um, that is connected to reflection and introspection. And I'll, I'm going to share with you a little bit of, of their quotes and their nature in, in a second. Okay. Well, actually, let's, let's do it. So let's just... For as an example, and uh, this is um, in Tafsir Ayn al Haya. This is a, a little bit of a the quote is a little bit long, but I'll, I'm gonna paraphrase it because it's really interesting because we don't often get quotes like this. Um, uh, this Tafsir was written in the 8th century Hijra. Um, Yeah, so about the 11th century A.D. Um, so he, he's talking about the, these these narratives and and the the idea of the the ship within and and then he segues uh, into something about his own story. So, he says that in the story of Nuh, he says that Allah is, is telling you that if you attempt to pay attention to the ship of your inner ship of salvation, that the, one of the hardest thing for you to construct that ship is that people all around you will be treating you as if you are a majnoon muzdajr. That they are people will be treating you as if you're crazy. And 
as if you are a loser in life because you are interested about what is going within and you are interested in your inner peace because people are constantly going to be pushing you to um, uh, achieve, to compete, to, to so on. So he, then he says um, that I'm, I'm, try, I'm trying to find where he begins in. Um, so he says, So he says, and I personally express the experience this at the beginning of my past because my father and my uncle and my relatives all thought I'm insane. Why? He says that first his father and his uncle and his relatives thought he's insane because he was constantly uh, committed to dhikr. In, 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 just in the interest of time, I'll, I'll move around a bit and tell you there's a part where he's talking about that first he starts out by saying awrad that he asked people in the mosque how do i reach god and they said well you should do awrad and that he was on his own repeating awrad meaning uh, dua that he that the prophet used to say and he would just repeat the dua and do zikr by himself and that it wasn't going anywhere and then that he found a sheikh and the sheikh told him, no, do the following dhikr, stick to the following path, and that he then sticks to it, but the, the sheikh put a very demanding schedule for him. And that his, at that point, then his father and his uncle and his relatives thought that he's crazy. You know, why is he putting him through that, through himself through that? Then he says, when he did it, one day, he saw in his dick session, he started seeing flames rising all the way to the sky, to the heavens. And that these flames were emitting from his chest all the way to the heavens. فَلَمَّا فَلَمْ فَتَحْتُ الْعَيْنُ أَبْصَرْتُهَا مُعَيَّنَا قُلْتُ فِي نَفْسِي إِنَّ الَّذِينَ يَقُولُونَ فِي حَقِّ الَّذِينَ يَقُولُونَ فِي حَقِّ صِدْقِ مَا هَذِي الْمُعَيَّنَة لِلشَّرَارَاتِ فِي ظُلْمَةِ اللَّيْلِ فِي جَوْشُ الْبَيْتِ الْمُظْلِمِ إِلَّا مِنْ فَسَادٍ جَزْبٍ جَزْبٍ فِي الْدِمَاغِ so he, when he saw he, it was at night and he's sitting in the dark at home and he sees these flames coming out of his chest then he became convinced that his uncle and his father must be right that he's insane and and that um 
all the aqwa nafsiya fi takhwifi wa man'i so on that all the, what the, the his parents or his father and his uncle and his relatives they would tell him stop doing this so much and stop doing this stop pursuing this path because you're going to lose your mind and when he went through this experience he became convinced that they must be right uh, they would say that so he tried to ignore or tried to ignore his fears and his worry that he's losing his mind and persisted on with his zikr. Then the next day when he goes to the mosque and he approaches where the imam is, what he sees are like um, luminous planets surrounding him. Um, So it says, um, that he felt comforted when he saw these planets. However, he feared telling anyone because then they would, that they would then tell him that you have to leave Zikr because see you're losing your brain. Okay, so then he continues on with, with the story, but, and then he says that um, eventually, after that experience of seeing the, 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 the uh, he goes into seclusion for two years. This is for the, the, the people who always say, I've been doing this for, you know, a couple of months or whatever. Uh, and and they, he goes into seclusion for two years, and then he talks about his experiences in, in the two years. But he chooses to talk, to share with us the story in the context of Surah Al-Qamar. And he's doing this in the context of Surah Al-Qamar because for, within the Sufi-esque tradition, Surah Al-Qamar and... And and the the various symbols, so the ship of Nuh, the the camel of Saleh, the the aggression of Lut, the people of Lut. Um, this is the that is a, an especially abysmal phase, and the worst of all is Qawm Faraon, where the, the was Lut, you have. A, you have abandoned yourself to the demonic was Pharaoh. You have you you basically have deified yourself. Okay, so why am I telling you about the the Sufi esque approaches to um, these issues? Because of the issue of punishment and that refrain, "Fakayfa kana azabi wa nuzur." So with Nuh, we have 
torrents of water, a long process of advocacy, a long process of denial, and we, in the narrative of Noah, the people of Noah are consistently keen on being blessed with ample water because they are farmers and it is and it is interesting that their destruction basically happens with an overabundance of water the flood the people of ad are overcome by a sandstorm that challenges their rationalistic arguments because the people of Ad believed or that the way you deal with sandstorm is to dig um, into the ground and to hide in um, uh, shelters underground and that that would be and they tell uh, the, the, the prophet that we're not worried about sandstorms because we, we are shelter builders and it is rather interesting that the way they're destroyed is by the sandstorm that comes and plucks them out like trunks of palm trees. The people of Thamud, these are the, the, the people who are killed by the Saiha or are destroyed by the Saiha. They reached a point where they aggressively destroyed the very source of blessing in their life. It's like they 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 themselves went to the Nama to the Allah's blessings and destroyed it with their own hands. And so they are dealt with in what we're told is some blast, some cataclysmic event. Kaumulut, who are criminal in nature, are destroyed through a a tempest that stones them to death, heralding violence against them. While Fur'aun, Allah doesn't say other than that there's Azab al Mustaqar that they were just simply obliterated. We know else, from elsewhere what happens to come for own, but here it's simply something 
that was overwhelming and swift, and it is because of the, who they are, claiming the, the, the uh, deity or deification to themselves. So here is what I think about these various kaifakan azabi wanodur. Nuh, the destruction of being flooded, and this is, by the way, something that is pointed out by a lot of Sufi-esque tafsir, that, that, that you are, when you, one of the ways that you are destroyed is by luxury itself, an overabundance of na'am. And that the flood is always symbolic for an overabundance of na'am. That you, you are, you drown in your own luxury. And in, if you, in our language, you drown in commodification. Nuh are drowned out in, in our language today, in the, the very source of their nama. It's like being destroyed by being overly blessed. It's like being destroyed by suddenly God granting you all the wealth you wanted and more. It takes, it's a long process, but it is full with moments that you could repent, you could come back, unless you are committed to denial, like the son of Nuh, when we know that his father tells him, come and ride, and he says, no, I'm, I'm not. I'm not going to do that. People of Ad their destruction, because of their argumentativeness and their egoism is again a sandstorm but it is a protracted or it is a, an, a, a method of destruction that could have given them an opportunity an opportunity for reprieve. Samud, if you destroy your nama like we like corrupting like destroying the very nature that Allah has given you then your destruction can be as swift as a blast no op opportunity to repent in, in fact it's it's like exactly the people who dig a hole in the ship that they were given If you are ruining, Allah gives you the nama, and you in turn effectively kill it. Then your punishment is of the same nature as your sin. And loot the tempest. 
violent offense brings violent consequences. And for Aum, the worst of all, subservient obedience to a human being as if they're God brings the type of destruction of all the sins put together, disease. We, we know, of course, the, 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 the way that Kaum Fra'am was punished later on. But every evil and foul thing, but the worst thing about it is because you have surrendered your will and your intellect to another human being, Although you see all this destruction around you, none of it wakes you up. Because as long as the person that you surrendered your will to told you to ignore it, you ignore it. It's like inviting us to reflect on how we can be experiencing the consequences of our ill-doing. And in fact, God's punishment. But if we are committed to denial, then we're going to rationalize it away. And, you know, some of us might have thought, if I'm sure that if you belong to Qawm Thamud, the people who were destroyed in the blast, they probably would tell themselves, you know, if we were among Qawm Nuh, and then we, we would, instead of God destroying us in the blast, God was destroying us in the flood, we would have repented. But Surah Al-Qamar is telling you, no, you wouldn't have repented. If you're committed to argue argumentativeness, you would have still ignored the signs, whether a blast or a sandstorm or whatever the method. Look at what makes you committed to rejecting your Lord because of an illness inside, regardless of what the evidence is. Um, one of the things I, I ran across, I don't remember where, where I read it, but I, I know that I wrote it down because I, I thought it was strange. Uh, there was a source that said, if you get that, Yadatarratun. Can you say one more time? <laughs> they, the people of people of Lot were punished by wind because they used to release air in public and not be embarrassed of doing so. <laughs> um, 
Okay. I I want to share with you some of the some of the the just so to, to give a some of, of the material you find in Sufi-esque literature. Uh, Of, of how they read the symbolisms of Surah Al-Qamar. So, when Surah Al-Qamar talks about the flood in reference to Noah, this is the language. They read the flood as Tughyan Sama Al-Ma'ay سماء الصدر على ماء عنصرية الأرض البشرية that the issue of the flood is whether you are flooded or whether your your you your the balance between your supernal nature is not is is uh, not in a state of balance with your more mundane earthly nature so they they see the flood as being overcome by um your earthly materialistic inclinations. Arih for uh, who were they? Um, yeah, Arih is always, especially in reference to Qawmad, is understood as Rih al Hawa al Mukaddira, that it is the wind of whim and that when Allah talks about Rihasifa that that Allah is warning you about the extent to which you are exposed or you are or you are open to the wind of whim. Um The Hasab with Qawmulut they often read as Abkadurat al Afal al Khabisa that the Hasab is Allah allowing you to experience the effects of your own aggression. I mean, this is just little tidbits because there's just so much in the Sufi-esque literature about the, the symbolism of... Okay, so... Now... So, notice... There's another refrain in Surah Al-Qamar. وَلَقَدْ يَسَّرْنَا الْقُرْآنِ لِلذِّكْرِ فَهَلْ مِنْ مُدَّكِرِ Repeatedly, we not repeat it as often as but on several occasions in Surah Al-Qamar Allah says that we 
facilitated Quran. We made the Quran easily accessible to dhikr. So will any of you remember? This is one of the reasons that convinced me, again, underscored the Quran itself as a miracle. Because it's, it, it, and, and not, and, and that, that the moon didn't split at the time of the Prophet Because we notice in Surah Al-Qamar, every time that Allah is telling us about those people who are committed to denial, Allah reminds us saying, but listen, I've given you the Quran and made it easily accessible. If only will you listen. It is as if Allah is saying the, the Quran is as, as, as easy as at your fingertips. Okay. Then after Fir'aun, which is which is the most swift of consequences that which comes around we're not even told how destroyed other than it was overwhelming then this is in 43 that now it it shifts gear to addressing the deniers of Mecca and is saying to the Meccans well do you think that you're an exception you are somehow different from Lut and Ad and so on um, Bara'atun Fudzubur means, uh, let me see how they translate it, 43. Exemption and descriptions, yeah. That, so it basically saying, well, or do you have, which is again a consistent theme as to, do, do you have a book that you somehow find justifying your denial. This is 44. The Meccans told the Prophet that look, we are a clear majority and the majority in Mecca will not believe you. If you were a reasonable man, you would accept the fact that the, the, all the honorable people in your society, all the majority, all the leaders of your society don't want your message. So even if you believe yourself to be true, you should respect the order. 
the established order. So we'll say, أَمْ يَقُولُونَ نَحْنُ جَمِيعٌ مُنْتَصِرٌ The ethical significance of this is, is actually quite important. That the jama, the, the majority, will often claim righteousness just because of their numbers. And will say, truth is with us, or at least, as a point of order, defer to us, if you don't want to believe truth is with us. And that, in fact, that is a common mechanism for those who refuse to accept or to or to adhere to truth is to simply say, well, as a point of order, let's just go with the established system. Um, 45. The important thing about 45 is that the, 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 it says the majority the the popular the, the the mainstream will in fact be defeated. Now this is an early Meccan revelation and of course when the Meccans heard this they mocked the Prophet up and down because it wasn't even there was no hijra there were no battles or so they said, what do you mean the majority will be defeated? Do you really think that you are going to preach and that the majority of Meccans are going to convert to Islam just because of your preaching? Which, of course, is not what happened because the, the, the majority doesn't convert until Mecca is defeated militarily. Um, but... So it was a prediction as to what will happen vis-a-vis the Meccans years later. In modern Islamic movements, I've seen a lot of, um, in their enthusiasm and their, um, that I've seen this verse frequently cited as a promise of victory to, um, that extends beyond the Meccan context. So I've seen, for instance, the, during the days of, of the Arab Spring, um, especially the Islamic groups that, that, that eventually got slaughtered by the Sisi regime would say, would, would quote it. And what, what I want to say is that it is very dangerous to take this area as a promise of victory um, that extends beyond the time of the Prophet addressed to the Meccans, it, it is it, 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 because it, that's not what it, it, that's not what it's, it's saying. 
It's not saying that uh, if all those who are on the Islamic side will be victorious. Um, There's just a, a footnote. Um, okay. إن المجرمون في ضلالهم وصور يوم أصحابنا في النار يروجون مذوقهم مس سكر إن كل شيء خلقناه بقدر. Yeah, if you look at forty nine, we've created we've created everything according to a measure. The most amazing thing is verse forty nine. became the focal point in the endless debates between the different theological sects about predestination and qadr. Um, in Islamic history, 49 in particular became center and front in the debates between the Jabriya and the Qadariya and the, then the later on debates between the Mu'tazila and the Ash'ariya and the Matabidiya. Uh, although it seems like it's just saying that Allah is saying that we've created everything according to a measure but it became a symbolic verse that is, is uh, that on Qadr itself, the concept of uh, to the extent to which we are okay that وَكُلُّ شَيْءٍ فَعَلُوهُ فِي الزُّبُرُ وَكُلُّ صَغِيرٍ وَكَبِيرٍ مُسْتَطِرٍ that everything that, that all the deeds are carefully recorded إِنَّ الْمُتَّقِينَ فِي جَنَّاتٍ وَنَارَةٍ فِي مَقْعَدِ صِدْقٍ عِنْدَ مَلِيكٍ مُقْتَدِرٍ فِي مَقْعَدِ صِدْقٍ عِنْدَ مَلِيكٍ مُقْتَدِرٍ 55 Upon a seat of truth before an omnipotent God It is one, it is فِي مَقْعَدِ صِدْقٍ عِنْدَ مَلِيكٍ مُقْتَدِرٍ It's one of the most eloquent, beautifully eloquent phrases that you can ever hear that's completely emptied in translation. Because the Maqadi Sidqin is seat of truth. What is a seat of truth? And the seat of truth in the Malik al-Muqtadir it's like being a seat of truth before or, or in the vicinity of or at the realm of uh, a, a king that controls all. An amazing image 
And the best thing I can say that if you live your life committed to doubt, there is no way that your end can be a seat of certitude. A seat of certitude is for those who accept that doubt is a very useful instrument to discover and learn things, but there are truths in life that must be committed to. And that they build their life upon the foundation of these truths that they commit to. And that being committed to your hawa or, or your, your whim is not a truth. It is in fact ending up eventually in the one in, in in the fate that Allah keeps repeating the refrain to um, how did you find the consequences the warning and the punishment and that's Surah Al-Qamr Alhamdulillah okay Bismillahirrahmanirrahim that was I, thank you so much I love the um I love it when we learn about the, the Sufi-esque um, interpretations. No. And my, my favorite was the inner camel, which made me <laughs> like, think about the, the beauty of, um, well, the idea of like tying your camel, now your inner camel, how somehow you've acquired, like, the you know, you refer to yourself as the camel. No. So, <laughs> jokingly, people around here know we joke about that. Um, so they, maybe I they, can ask they, first about the camel. They, they, say, they say the camel is نَقَطْ الشَّوْقْ فِي مَشْرَبِ السَّمَاءِ Which means that the, the camel is God's gift to you. The, the parts of you that longs for the divine. So the naqat al-shawq fi mashrab al-sama' means that part of you that, that you hear certain things and for a moment, for an instant, sometimes for a millisecond, you long, you long for the divine. You, you long for a repose for the comfort, uh, you long for something deeper. Uh, so they even say like that, this is, um, uh, again, one of, one of the, the things that I uh, noted in the notes, but because it was so many, you know, as, as I keep saying, I didn't plan to teach any of this, so I didn't write sources down or whatever. But that, um, one of the things that I read is that 
he's talking about what the snaqa is, and so he's saying that um, that so many people, when they are when they have sexual desire, they're like aroused, and that when that desire is satisfied, for right in the instant after, there is some there's often hit what hits people who are especially doing things haram is that sense of emptiness, that sense of disappointment. And he's saying this is your naqa. This is this is the camel calling you, saying, No, this is not the path. Um and but the that like the people of Saleh, that gift that Allah puts in a lot of us, um, you kill it. You kill it with alcohol. I will add, you kill it with drugs. Because same thing. Um, you, or, or you abuse it with alcohol, or you abuse it with drugs. Or or you eventually just silence it altogether. Um, because if if you always fail to to hear or to, to give it its its mushroom, meaning its watering rights. Because in the people of Salah Allah says to them, Some days you drink, some days the camel drinks. Well, the camel has to be given its rights. And the camel, in order to be given its rights, has to be indulged in, in dhikr. And it's like um, uh, that tafsir that I read from, which leads them to go into two years of seclusion. What he says is that for two years, all he cared about is now having realized what the camel is, is that he wanted to give the, to give the entire terrain to his camel. And um, yeah, it, it, and it's it, even the, the, the language that he uses is fascinating. Meaning that you listen to certain things, you study certain things, you read certain things, and and every once I mean and and it has this this the the part of you that has this camel is the part that that ideas learning spark in you a longing for something deeper. It's like I I know this is n not what it's all about. Um, yeah. The, there's um, um, so for instance, when they they always talk about um, water is always the um, how you deal with blessings, how you deal with with how you deal with with uh, health, how you deal with. Uh, property, how you deal with comfort, how that, that's always the, the so, um, 
um, riyah, wind, is always how you deal with whim, with hawa. Um, and so to be destroyed by wind is to be destroyed by God saying, okay, I'm going to lead you at the mercy of your whims. Okay, you know, I'm, 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 that's it. Uh, you are completely at the mercy of your whims now. And you, you're a whimsical person. And because you're a whimsical person, if you're overcome by the riyah, then you're, you know, you're, some days you're extremely happy because things made you very cheerful. And, uh, and then you're, the next minute you're extremely depressed um, because something disappointed you. You're a person of, of just impulse. An impulse takes you up and an impulse takes you down. And, and, and eventually that's destruction because if, if you live as an impulsive human being, you become eventually a very sour human being. Uh, um, because you're always disappointed. There, there is never a time that you're not going to be disappointed. Um, what else? Um, As-Sayha, the um, Sayha, which is we said is the um, uh, the blast. Um, they say Aqwa Nafsiya is the Sayha. Um, Al-Sayha is your, Qawwan Nafsiya is the, your, um, your psychological, what drives you psychologically. Um, what drives you psychologically. So are you driven by Al-Akhlaq Al-Hamida? Are you driven by ethics? By an understanding of the rights of others and your own place in the universe of rights? Or are you driven by a, 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 a basic narcissism where you basically, all you want to do is to serve yourself or to serve those who serve you or those who um, uh, uh, elevate you or those who worship you, or those who praise you. Uh, that's a sayha. Um, um, the hasab, which is the, uh, the, the, the sandstorm, um, the sandstorm um, is um, um, Is what they call the the hasil hasil al-dawrat al-khabitha, or al-dawrat min al-af'al al-khabitha. The hasil is um, is symbolic for the energy or the force that is created from the collectivity of your sins. Every sin you commit in life is leaves a force, like an energy force, uh, a darkness. 
and as they accumulate one on top of the other, they shape your inner energy. And that inner energy could either elevate you to a person who's rawhani, or could doom you like exactly like like a sandstorm that stones you to death, like a hassle. Um So you you're not stoned immediately by one or the the first time or the second time or the third time you commit a sin, but and they what's very interesting is that they often talk about that this the it's not just the sins of um like uh, like fornicating or but sins like envy or jealousy or um ill will um these are sins they're they're and they accumulate until they become a force that you cannot um you cannot uh, uh, um, uh, you cannot get from under. Like they, they, they weigh down on you and they suffocate you, uh, and you, you can't evade the 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 power of that energy uh, unless you go in an intensive cleansing program to get rid of the 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 power of these energies. So these and these are all things that if you are um, if you are in a on a journey things that you actively work on and you actively deal with Thank you. Okay, so we'll start in here. I know everyone's, you guys start on the side there. Joe? Let's go simple and work our way. Thank you very much, Professor. Um, just a uh, the main theme and lesson from this surah, you know, about those who are addicted to denial, committed to denial, have a vested interest in denying, it seems very similar to Surah Dukhan, mm -hmm. Um Yeah, I just thought if we could just discuss that, or can I be saying exactly the same thing, or are there different shades of emphasis, which one came first, maybe all the revelation is one of commentary on the other, or I just kind of got a very similar message. Yeah, I mean, it's, I, the, um, Surah Al-Qamar was, is not as um, philosophically nuanced as a Dukhan. Um, and and there, this is a, 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 something that in the Quranic style, there are several lessons that are first introduced in a basic format um, for you to reflect on and to sort of in, invite 
the very concept itself without really much elaboration but then developed later and so we see we'll see several of the themes that we've seen um, in um, Taha and that we've seen in um, well, we haven't done Surah Fusulat yet, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, in Taha, in Fusulat, in um, 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 even Rahman, that are developed further in later revelation in Ali Umran and in Baqarah and Am. Um, the Dukhan is is an entire symphony about the construction of how you construct your reality and how you understand your reality and how you um, negotiate through this reality. Um, uh, Al-Qamar is has a is it's like introducing you to the alphabet first and saying, you know, there, 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 there are some people that are just, even if the moon splits right before their eyes, they're still not going to believe. And then it, it's telling you, you know, re remember that uh, if you don't want to believe, that's fine. But the, 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 your sins are going to draw upon you a punishment of the same nature of your sins, um, of the same elk. And in many ways, it's like saying, you know, you could pay attention to the Quran now, the messages that are going to come, and start working on yourself or you could choose to ignore the Quran but don't blame anyone but yourself later on and it's as straightforward as that so if I you know if if I was it's not my my choice but if I was teaching it I would have probably like introduced the Qamar and then later on did, but you know, yeah, whatever the 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 reasons. Kamara um, was revealed before. Kamara revealed before Dukha. A lot before. Uh, yeah, I mean not. A, yeah, I mean which. a few years, um, but. Um, uh, I mean, we we don't know about we we know that for instance that the 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 prophet would um um we have several narratives that he Qamar was among the sword that he would recite every night um before going to bed but that's not surprising considering that he would spend such long hours in worship that um, you know, if you spend long enough hours in worship, you're going to end up reciting a lot. Um, 
but Qamar seems to have been one of the 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 the, the regular ones that every night. Um, but we don't have it, you know we don't have like we don't have a lot of reports about its how it impacted Muslims. We we have reports about how non-Muslims the kuffar don't, uh, reacted to it. Um, how did they react to it? Well, they were the 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 thing that they reacted to the most is that it tells them that uh, that the the, the, you're going to be defeated, or you, depending on how you understand it, are, is it saying you're going to be defeated, or is it going? Is it saying the mainstream is going to be defeated? But in either way, considering when Qamar was revealed, it to them it sounded ridiculous, uh, and that's what they reacted to the most. Something that really stood out to me were, uh, was the language in Ayahs 24 and 47. I was wondering if you could say a little bit about that, because just looking at the translations that I have, it seems like there's a bit of distinction depending on the Qur'an about whether it's misguided and insane or error and madness, and it seems to uh, echo throughout the translation. So if one of the Ayahs is translated one way, misguided and insane, the other seems to be, although 47 has a little bit more allusion to the blazes. So I was wondering for you, if you have anything to say about those distinctions. In the Mujibina fi Dalal in Rasu'ar? Yes. Uh, you said 47 and what? 24. And, uh, oh, in the Oh, oh, yeah. So I was just wondering if there, if that linkage yeah. is important. Thank you. Um, yeah, this, um, um, the verses, the, the 24, قالوا أبشر من واحدا نتبعه وإن إذا لفي ضلال وصعر If we follow a human being like us, um, then we are in ضلال وصعر Now here صعر in this context, sark, the the word for being um, rabid is in in Arabic is saaran, and the word for uh, epilepsy is um, um, oh no, sorry, that's sara, no, no, but sar. It comes from uh, there is a naqal masura. Naqal masura is a is a a, a a a camel that is energetic, that is full of energy, and so suar was often connoted insanity, junoon, craziness. So what? Inna fi dalalin wa suar, meaning that we are in loss and absolute insanity. But then in 47, when it comes, it says, إِنَّ fi dalalin wa it, it flips it on them by saying, 
you are the 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 criminals or the offenders are in loss wasar now here it could mean and indeed they are insanity because of their denial or it could mean that they as most commentators took it to mean that they are in hellfire i think it is it is more um it is I don't think it needs to say I mean it could also mean hellfire but I think what the eloquence of the car is that it flips the accusation on them they're basically saying it is completely insane if we follow um, this message of a human like us but it comes back and say well the only way the truth is conveyed is through humans like you. And the truth is the truth, even if it's conveyed by a human like you. And if you don't follow it, indeed you are in loss and insanity. And I think that's, so I mean, I'm, I'm happy you asked about this because I think this, this, the Quran often employs that style that it, it's as if saying, well, if, if you really want the truth, uh, you're completely, you're completely, you're a complete loser if you don't follow this message rather than if you follow this message. And so that, that muqabala is, is very fascinating. The hard theological question? Maybe it's not hard at all. I mean, I'm sorry for asking it because sometimes the premise of these questions annoy me, but here I am asking it anyways. So, um, it, when reading through, you know, these accounts of like obliteration of an entire people, I can't help but think about, um, you know, uh, people who weren't necessarily involved. Um, in the process of, you know, going astray, like children or cattle or mm -hmm. whomever else was in, in the entire qawm, so, so to speak. And, and also while reading through these, you know, azab or punishments or, you know, these difficult moments, it's also hard not to think about current turmoils and difficulties, the obvious one being, you know, coronavirus as a result of, you know, malfeasance and misappropriations um, you know markets those, those those types of markets came to exist we know because of the rich and the rich wanted to have you know weird delicate tastes that were eclectic and you know that made them mm -hmm. feel nice or um, you know the massive refugee crisis that is occurring and will be occurring as a result of uh, you know global climate change again uh, uh, you know, so I, I keep thinking of all of these individuals who are essentially, and, and, and again, you, you spoke about kind of like the slow burn punishment of the luxury excesses. And again, something that feels like it applies to today, but the punishment seems to always be affecting first and foremost, the marginalized communities. Um, and it doesn't make sense that they are being punished per se, but rather that they are in the you know area of the blast. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you can comment on this. 
what is one to think theologically about you know the individuals that are caught in in the fire so to speak or the crossfire so to speak Well, you know, the, um, yeah, you know, the, 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 um, um, the, the, the nature of whether we, we like it or not, the, the minute that human beings are given free volition, free choice, um, and the ability to form their own fate, um, then by definition, they, they are exercising this volition uh, in relation to everyone else. So by definition, they're affecting everyone else. And we are constantly being impacted by not just our own willpower, by the willpower of others. And, the, the, I mean, if, if the only way for that to be avoided is for the entire paradigm of free will and free volition is to be taken away. Because the, 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 the minute you come and say, you know, here is a, a piece of cake and you guys, <coughs> I'm giving you each a knife and you guys decide how you want to cut up this piece of cake. I'm not going to cut it up for you uh, uh, and I'm going to give you the ability to, to make decisions as to how to cut it up. It, you know, <coughs> with... Every time your piece is smaller or bigger, it's, it's at the expense of someone else. That's just the nature of things. Now, th there are a couple of things when it comes to um, part in part is the the hadith that is often um, quoted that although the different versions are different levels of authenticity, but anyway, the, that if um, the, the, this this entire life for for uh, for Allah is if if it was worth depending on the version of the hadith if it w was worth uh, as much as human being thinks it was worth then God would not uh, give those who deny God uh, all types of blessings and so there's different versions of the hadith that. But it, so in other words, this this life is a place where where um, uh, for us it seems like the beginning and the end because that's what we experience as human beings. But from I think from the perspective of the divine, um, it is a very transitory, temporary, and um, artificial thing. Um, um, so to that, and, and and that is, you know, if if it was the fact that you know people would die in a tsunami and that's the end of it, 
uh, that be quite unfortunate because it's by the nature of things it's always going to be the people who have more wealth more means that are going to be able to protect themselves the most uh, and it will always be at the expense of people who don't have as much means. It's the nature of, of free volition and, and so on. Um, so this is, this is one aspect, is that um, when we talk about um, the, 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 the bystander, if you will, I mean, although the extent of, uh, 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 so that's one aspect, is that if you want to talk about justice, then you, you have to think about justice in both in, in here and in the hereafter as to those who suffer an injustice in this earth. I mean, I often think of the the type of people that uh, when I when I internalize in in, in the the po points of real zikr and you start to imagine yourself in in the hereafter and you internalize that view and you start thinking of all the people that you would be jealous of. Um, it is exactly the type of people that I'm not jealous of on this earth, and the, the type of people that I I. I truly internalize the, the feeling of that I would want to stay very far and clear from are the type of people that um, get a lot of attention on this earth. Um, so the, that, that's, uh, that's, another, that's one thing. The other thing is that though, keep in mind that that is precisely why um, the we can't afford to mess around with the obligation to do justice because if we fail to do so and there is a collective disaster a, the collective punishment a collective mihna uh, like corona and it is the weakest elements of society that suffer from it. You bear part of the sin for that. And so it is exactly why uh, anyone who God has given any form of means cannot afford to sit and say, well, it's none of my business or it's you know, I, I think of something like, um, and, and this is one of the most troubling things about the, something like the coronavirus, is that it, it, it's terrifying to think of how much sin all those who could have made the difference. So, for instance, if you're very wealthy and you don't pay any taxes despite your enormous wealth it's terrifying it's really scary um or if you're very wealthy and and you've never paid attention to any of the social justice issues again it's terrifying because okay their troubles ended in this world and they're 
will be compensated in the hereafter, but you're in big trouble. So that's precisely why, as Muslims, we cannot afford, we cannot afford to say Islam is about prayer and fasting and so on, and to ignore social justice issues. It, it is, the, the dynamic is, is that if a child, so for, you know, like um, the, the children that are dying in Yemen, or the children that are dying in Syria, If, if it was unavoidable that they suffer because of the, of the collective decisions made by human beings on this earth and the laws of causation caused them to suffer, but Allah knows if you as an individual could have actually made a difference to save that child from suffering and you failed to do so, then it's upon your head in the hereafter. And that's precisely why when I hear those Muslims who deal with Islam as if it's about praying and fasting and and going to Jannah, I think to myself, you're completely deluded. You you think you're going to make you're going to go to Jannah by ignoring the marginalized and and the weak and I mean by by the time the the accounts get done, how do you know that you're going to have anything left that's positive in your in the accounts in the year after because of all the things that you fail to do um i mean we don't we can't if anyone is really unhappy with um free choice um and they, they, they fundamentally disagree that God should have given hum, human beings free choice, um, you know, then, they, they, then they're free to check out by killing themselves or by um, becoming a, a, a zombie, I don't know, destroying their brain cells or something. And, uh, but because that, that's, that's, that's the province of the divine. We, we don't control. It's, it's like, as I said before, it's like being born in a factory. Maybe you don't, you don't like the factory, but you're born in a factory. And the, the rules of the factory are such that if you don't do your job, there will be consequences for everyone. And but ultimately, the owner of their factory is going to come at you and say, what was your role in the disruption? You're not, going, you're not responsible as if the owner of the factory make decisions that are beyond your province. Um, so, I mean, it, 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 what you said, in fact, it's precisely why any Muslim cannot afford to ignore, I mean, for uh, recently, for instance, some rain fell in in Egypt and it killed poor people, or there were a few train accidents that killed a lot of poor people in these horrible train accidents. And I think to myself, if I was living in Egypt and I'm a wealthy person, I would be absolutely terrified because. 
what is my responsibility if I'm a wealthy person and I'm driving around and I see street children in Egypt what is my responsibility in the hereafter for these street children it's because there is a God and there is a hereafter that makes it so terrifying what is my responsibility for every person that died in these rainfalls as I was sitting at home safe what is my responsibility for every poor person who died in Egypt from Corona because there were no masks and because we've allowed tyrants and corrupt people to rule the country? What is my responsibility for uh, it, 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 the, the overcrowded, decrepit trains that keep crashing and killing people? Because again, as a wealthy person, I've allowed corrupt corrupt tyrants to rule this country and to make the trains the way they are and make the roads the way they are and make so a, a proper understanding of the theology of Islam would give you no quarter when it comes to thinking about injustice. It would become an absolute obsession because every injustice could very well, or is very likely, your direct business. Uh, because to the extent, I mean, only Allah knows what percentage of the blame do you share. You know, do you, is it 1%? Is it more than that? Is it, you know... Um, if, if I lived in a country like Egypt, I would be very happy to be absolutely, extremely poor to make sure that I bear no responsibility for anything. So I can tell God, well, you know, none of it is my fault because there's nothing I could have done. But it is exactly because we don't think that way as Muslims is where we are. Because somehow we've convinced ourselves, um, oh no, you know, Allah's not going to ask us about these injustices when Allah clearly says I give you money intending it for the poor person that you don't give it to um, I mean how could it be more more direct than that I mean it, it's like literally the salary you're receiving or the money you're making you go in the hereafter and discover that you know what I actually Guess what? As God, I expected you to only keep 20% of that. All the rest, I expected you to give away. That's terrifying. I don't know how people are not terrified. It, it definitely keeps me awake at night. It, it's so terrifying. The only way I think people don't, doesn't keep them away at night is they don't take it seriously. Somehow they just think, eh, you know, God is going to cut me slack. You know, on the on the flip side of it, as to your question, which is interesting, is like when you think about the children, and you know, like a lot of people are always asking, you know, why is God so horrible? Because God allows these young children to suffer, these young children to have cancer and die. But if you think about it in terms of like their level of accountability and justice and what is before them in the next life, 
I mean, they, I would imagine that God, God is obviously going to compensate them for all of the suffering and everything yeah. here. Um, and, like, I might even think of, you know, maybe this is like an analogy where you're, you know, we always joke about how you're half empty and I'm half full. But, like, when I think about, okay, you're born into a factory, like, that sounds horrible. Like, a factory sounds like a dingy, dark, dirty place that you don't really want to be, unless maybe it's the, you know, Willy Wonka's chocolate factory or something like that. Um, but maybe you think of it like, you know, you were born into this beautiful, majestic forest, right? And it's everyone's job to keep it clean and sparkling and beautiful and healthy. Like, when you think about the, you know, the Quran of creation. Mm -hmm. And the idea that we are all supposed to contribute to creating this very beautiful forest, and when you don't do your part, that's, you know, like, I mean, I, you know, I would rather be, like, no, thinking about, no. you know, why, why did we not live up to our duty of preserving and protecting this beautiful, magical forest that God gave us? And we all have a role to play in that. And then the children who were forced to leave this beautiful, magical forest were really served in injustice because they didn't get to stay and enjoy it, you know? I mean, so it's, so, but in the, in the overall calculation of things, right, if, like, it, it seems to me it's just a different way of saying, in the end, you know, it's, there's no injustice you're gonna end up, I mean, I think know, if, if, if Muslims really understood their religion, because, like, we know it, that Allah hasn't created a disease without a cure. So, the child who is born with, who has a disease and dies, they leave this world, their reward is with Allah, and they are in a very privileged place in the hereafter. But you know what's really scary? Is all the people who could have, and only Allah knows, who could have actually invented a cure for that disease. Mm -hmm and failed to do so. If Muslims understood this, they would be at the head, at, like at the cunning edge of the world, inventing all the cures, and but it blows, it just blows my mind that for some reason, Muslims are not motivated, they're not driven anymore. Um, I was just reading a uh, this book called um, um, the Islamic in influence on the English Reformation, um, and it it's talking about how all these British Reformation figures um, were were eating up Islamic sciences, and you know the Muslims were measuring the circumference of the earth and. And when you look at the, 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 the theology that prevailed among these Muslims, which precisely what I'm talking about, is that they, they always felt like, you know, if we, if, we are, if we are not pushing the envelope on everything as to how we're keeping charge of this world, Allah will hold us responsible. Somehow, a, a very different theology overtook Muslims. A theology that basically says, don't worry about it. Um, just do your salah and do your psalm and you'll be fine. And it's like they forgot about the magical forest and all the potential. 
and instead all the bad lazy people got in charge and said don't do anything because we don't want to be responsible for the magical forest <laughs> which means that it's their doom yeah anyway Shreve did you have a question Um, ancient civilizations, I mean, I'm most familiar with Sumerian civilization, they, they noted and, and uh, even, even the flood that they, most experts connected to the biblical flood. But it, in a lot of these things that they discovered and, and all of its theories, you know, these ancient religions all viewed the relationship with their progress and, and even, you know, with their crops, with their ability to produce food, with their, with their technology as a direct relation with whatever was the predominant religion at that time. Right. Um, so it was, you know, their, their blessing. And the not having that was, was a punishment, a sign they had to sacrifice more or give more or, right. you know, whatever it is to these deities. And um, in the surah, I... So, I mean, it's obvious that human beings have changed the way that they, they, the relationship with truth and the relationship with the world around them has drastically changed as we are now. And in other halakas, you were saying that this is a sign of, there, there was an age of miracles, and now we're in the age of reason. And so I wonder, do you think that that also applies with punishments? that the surah is almost as if it's saying it's not the fact that okay do wrong and I'm going to blow you up but yeah, investigate yeah. the nature of these punishments because everything is, is changing it's not just you're not just getting signs in terms of miracles but also the punishments are, are, are going to be very different you're going to have to do more work you're going to have to use your intellect to actually see what is the bad behavior as well as what is the preferred behavior on yeah, you know, I'm I'm happy. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's a really good question, and and I'm happy you asked that because. Can, can you just re repeat the question? The the question is that we that we said that it's changed from the age of miracles to the age of text and reason, the the ikra which we we've talked about before, and. Uh, Miracles are witnessed by the people who live at the time, and then it turns into a mythology. And um, and if it was the age of miracles, then it wouldn't be the final revelation, because it would we would have to be constant. So, but on the other side of miracles was that okay, you you have a miracle, if you deny the miracle then your punishment, your destruction, is something of, it's a logic of exceptionalism again. You, you, you're guided through an exception, and you're punished through an exception by changing the laws of nature so that you have a wind, you have blast, you have whatever that destroys you. Um, but with the final revelation and the final message and the end of the Age of Prophets, um, that also, and the end of the Age of Miracles, that also meant that the nature of punishment changed. 
punishment is now from majanat yadak what what your your what your hand earns not a the 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 punishments of the age of miracles where Allah and the age of prophets where Allah intervenes to wipe out a people as as a completion of the narrative of the miracle um, and this is it, it is introduced in Surah Al-Qamar but it is elaborated at far much greater detail later on in the Quran that um, and that it is although the Quran constantly talks to the Meccans and says you know how do you know God is not going to do that but it is of great theological significance that ultimately because this is the final prophet um, the, the the what was left was a text and the laws that the text tell you about um, there there are no um, in the same way that Allah is not going to make anyone victorious by sending angels to fight on your side against the unbelievers. And this is actually one of the interesting things is that this came up um, uh, in during the Crusaders and it came up during the Mongol invasion is that there were the, one of the issues that came up was that how could Allah allow Baghdad to be sacked and and why didn't Allah destroy the army of the Mongols by some miraculous cataclysmic event and you read some of the most interesting theological responses uh, from that is that basically a fair that 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 concept that it, it's it, you want to know why it's because Muhammad was the last prophet and the Quran is your continuing revelation and the, and the Quran told you you do one plus one you get two um, it, it is no longer the case that you know, you could do just one plus and a half and say, Allah, I leave the other half to you. It doesn't work that way. And it's when Muslims forget that is when they end up in the mess that they end up in. Thank you. Any okay. um, how do you recommend practicing self-reflection in order to gain self-awareness? Um, you, um, I mean, that's, um, 
that's a hard question then, Cheyenne. Yeah, that's... Uh... <laughs> Okay, maybe I, I maybe well, one way to, to, to break it a little at the beginning, so say, okay, so there there often um, we talk about an nafs al amara, an nafs al nawama, an nafs al So and what that means is, an nafs al amara is is the type of soul that is driven by um, what it wants. So it, it thinks most of the time from one day to the other, from one hour to the other, uh, I need, I want, I desire. Um, and that's enough, Amara is the most primitive soul. It, it, it is driven by its impulses, and it doesn't have much room for understanding that it is not about your impulses, because everyone has desires, everyone has impulses. Um, and if everyone thinks that way, it's exactly the type of selfish existence that we get in the world. The, the second is a nafs al-lawama, and that's a more advanced self, is the, the soul that thinks about what am I, what can I, take in fairness to all others and constantly thinks of what it takes as well as what it gives. So it's not what I want, but what have I given and is what I've given justify what I can take? where you reach a level of repose where you are nafsul mutma'inna the third is that what they say where you basically get to the point where you say i i i'm at peace because i give up everything i i don't want anything um so and this is a we a, 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 if you're beginning this process, I've always found it's a, it's a useful way of thinking. It's to start out by saying, what are my prevailing thoughts? Do I, do I think about most of the time I want, I need, I covet? Is your psychology about coveting? I mean, from when you first wake, in the wake up in the morning, Okay, so you know maybe we're drawn by name. First, we, we 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 have a desire that we can't control. I need to go to the bathroom. Uh, I need to take a shower. But what beyond that? Are you all about from one thing to the other? I want. I covet. And at what point in your thinking? do you start 
thinking of, of what have I given and what is it fair for me to expect back. When, when you break it down that way, do, are you driven by a nafs al-amara? Are you driven by a nafs al-lawama? And are you, is, do you seek a nafs al-mutma'inna? Do you want to reach a point where um, God fills you up? Maybe the third stage is too far, you can't even see it. But start out by thinking and put how often remember that Allah's ihsan is in direct proportion to your ihsan to others. Allah's extension of goodness to you is always in direct proportion to how you extend goodness to others. Is that the way that your psychology works? Do you always think of, um, I want from Allah, but I can't expect from Allah unless I give to others. I can't give Allah anything, but Allah wants me to give to others so I can receive. Um, do you think of that every time you do a du'a? And, you know, and think of before you quickly jump to the easy escapes. Easy escapes is, well, you know, I'm good to my children. Well, I'm good to my parents. Are you good to them because you objectively are a giving person or is it a way of feeling good about yourself? Because many of us are good to our children because it makes us feel good about ourselves. Uh, our children are extension of us. So yes, it counts, but it's not nearly enough. Um, because there's so many of us that um, never get beyond the nafs al-amara because they they are basically using their loved ones as an extension of their ego and as long as they're giving their loved ones they're actually giving themselves and then when their loved ones go away like their children grow up they discover they discover that they're extremely selfish human beings uh, because they're, they're, they always gave, but they always gave to themselves in the form of giving to their children as extension of the self. Very few of us are capable of actually dealing with our children as non-extensions of ourselves, but as truly independent human beings um, that are not simply an extension of the ego. Start the path that way. And if you find difficulty, turn to Allah and ask Allah to help you. If, if you find that you tend to uh, 
think of yourself all the time or be or a lot of times more times than you turn to Allah and ask Allah say make me less selfish make me less self-centered um, like in everything else you know make me less angry make me less resentful make me less jealous uh, you you turn to Allah and if you're admitting the fault and you're t saying turn to Allah saying help me solve it that's how you become introspective but, you know you can't you can't turn to Allah with 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 a false face you can't you're not going to be able to trick Allah you can't say to Allah you know oh uh, make me a very generous person well Allah knows that you're essentially an, an, an egocentric human being uh, who's a narcissist first admit you're a narcissist before I help you and then we're, we're in business <clears throat> okay, I guess there's a, um, I'm going to put two questions together since we're very close to the end of our time. So there was a follow-up to what you just said. How do we know we are not treating our kids as extensions of ourselves? Are there warning signs for that? And then the second question is, um, Salaamu Alaikum, thank you very much for consistently offering us beautiful interpretations and commentaries. May I ask, what are Zubar, or Books of Wisdom? Uh, a zubur, um, a zubur that is referred to, a zubur is, is, is sometimes the, um, in the Quran, means the Psalms of uh, Dawood, of David. Um, and, but here it basically means uh, any divine scripture. In the context of Surah Al-Qamar, zubur is just, any divine scripture. Um, Zubur, by the way, is is in um, uh, is um, an old word that came from Aramaic that referred to divine scripture, and it would moved from Aramaic to Arabic. Um, anyway, um, what was the other question that you? How do we know that we're oh. not treating our kids as extensions of ourselves? What are the warning signs for it? Um, or maybe a flip side of saying it is to um, how we recognize when we're treating them as independent individuals as opposed to... Experience. Yeah, you know, for first, it, it is as, as a matter of it is start out with the presumption that you you are treating your kids as an extension of, of yourselves, um, because that presumption, um, as your kids grow up, um, they will often let you know if you basically don't give them their integrity as human beings. Um, uh, but what are the warning signs if you find that you're said you know you're if you tell yourself I'm a good person why are you a good person well because 
I do this and this and this and this and this for my children. Um, but there is nothing really beyond your children, then that's probably an indication that they are an extension of yourself. Um, you know, but how do I, I, I um, um, I mean, my mother, for may Allah bless her soul, had three children. But I was always, and one of the lessons that just stayed with me um, is that um, I would often see her busy doing things, like, like getting things, getting uh, uh, like gifts and so on and and of course as a child I assumed that this must be for us like you know gifts and I think there were like uh, pastries and so on and and I said uh, something effect like uh, you know that and I was very very young but I think her response stayed with me uh, she said something like why why do you assume that anything good in the house is only for you you guys like you and your me and my sister and my brother and i quickly learned that no it's you know she she buys stuff um some of it is for us but as she would always put it um and a lot of it is for those more worthy than us. Um, that's that's a good way to learn the lesson. I have another one too. Is if if your children um, choose something that you don't approve of, like either something to study, some career path. You know, friends. I mean, friends maybe is a little bit difficult, but you know, I mean, one of the I I don't know. Maybe I'm maybe something is wrong with my blood as an Arab, but I've <laughs> I've always detested parents who tell their children, uh, "You have to study what what I want you to study." I mean. It's just a complete lack of faith. Um, it, they have their own intellects. They have their own interests. Um, what right do you have to to project your own your own interests on them? Um, that that is just haram. Um, I mean, and it just among the absurdities of of the the condition we've fallen in. Um, you know, I've known people that have no uh, no scientific ability or no mathematical ability, and then their parents say, you have to study engineering. And, you know. Okay, and just a few thank yous. Thank you for the amazing answers. Always Dr. Khaled and Jazakallah here for a fascinating halakha again. So.
on that note, thank you so much for joining us, and um, thank you for inviting. Who's Mafaz's friend? Okay, well, uh, Mafaz, hang on. After we're, we're going to end the live, and then we can we can check in with with that. Um, so we will see you. What is is today Tuesday? <laughs> we'll see you Saturday. Lose <laughs> track of the days. We'll see you this Saturday, inshallah, for our our next. Alika, thank you for being with us. Assalamu alaikum.